All right, if you have a bulletin, there is a little extra sheet in the bulletin that I want to talk to you about. We are going to, we're going to talk about, of course, the story of Jesus encountering the paralytic this morning. Uh, occasionally, as we go through this series, uh, we are going to do something a little bit different with the text. You will see in the bulletin here, this little sheet, this is uh, a blended account. I do, I've done this occasionally with other things. Uh, we have taken the three instances of the gospel story, so we have one in Luke, one in Ma uh, Matthew, and one in Mark, of this occasion, this story of the life of Jesus, and I have attempted to smush them all together. Now, I will say, I want to caution you in your own personal study of the Gospels. There's a reason that each Gospel writer emphasizes the things that they do in their Gospel. And so, as you're going through the Gospel of Luke, right, you're, you're thinking about the things that Luke is emphasizing, Matthew and Mark. In this particular series, though, my goal is to look at the overall picture of the account, the story of Jesus encountering the paralytic. And so to that end, there are some details in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the others do not include, and I have tried to show that here. So, uh, of course, the, the base for this story, as it will be for most of them, the base text will be Luke. Luke is, is sort of the, the main, I think, the main narrative focus in, in this particular story. Luke has the most detail. Luke has, the, I think, the clearest pacing of the story. Uh, Matthew and Mark, they have various things that they've either left out or included. And so I've included what Mark says that Matthew and Luke do not, and what Matthew says that Mark and Luke do not, as denoted by the different colors of text. And you'll see that on the slides. You'll see the same thing as what you have here on the slides. There's a, a, a blending of things together. So if you're looking at Luke, Matthew, and Mark in your own Bibles, it's not going to say what's on the screen, right? Because, uh, I've, again, I've, I've smushed them all together to hopefully give us an overall picture of how this story went in the actual moment, right? Putting together Mark's account and Luke's account and Matthew's account, we get the overall picture of what went on. And Jesus says some things that the, some writers don't include and they emphasize different things. We'll talk about a little bit why they emphasize different things as we go. But I'm going to do that for some of these stories as we go through the Gospels, as we go through uh, encountering Jesus in various circumstances. Uh, we're going to do this not every time, but we're going to do this when it's relevant, when it's, uh, I think, particularly valuable to see the overall picture of this story. So we're going to begin in uh, this story as we think about Jesus encountering a paralytic. In and I'm not going to read the references up there. You can read them up there. I'm not going to read them every time. We're in Luke 5. We're in Matthew 9. We're in Mark 2. You can see it on the screen. Uh, and you can follow along in your Bibles or on the handout. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, Capernaum. As it was, and it was reported that he was at home. On one of those days, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, the first thing we note, another mundane detail of Jesus' life. Soon after John's arrest in Matthew 4, we see this in Matthew 4, 12 through 15, uh, Jesus moves to Capernaum. That is recognized from this point forward as his home. Now, he's not from Capernaum, of course. We've looked at the text where he returns to his, his like where he grew up. That's not where he grew up. But this is where Jesus lived for the, the duration of his ministry. He's, of course, not there very often. He's traveling around all sorts of places and, and all over Judea and Jerusalem and Israel. And so he's not really home a lot. But the gospel writers sort of make this detail 
yeah, this is Jesus, this is where he lived. He had a home, like other people, but of course he's not there very often. And what is he doing? He goes home, and what is he doing? What we so often find him doing is he's teaching. This is what he does. Basically, wherever he goes, he teaches. We keep reading. As this is such a famous story, right? The guy who's lowered down into the, into the roof. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went on the roof and let him down in his, uh, with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, if you're sort of sitting there, Jesus is teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are there. There's so many people crowded into this, this building. Nobody, they're standing room only. And then Jesus is speaking and suddenly, as if from heaven, this guy is lowered down into the middle of the room. What that must have like looked like is you're just sitting around there, and suddenly there's this guy. I guess the people would have had to like move out of the way. Of course, it's standing room only; they can't get in. So I don't know. Did people like sort of whoa? We got to back up, and they're all crowded together. And then this bed is lowered down, and we'll return to the attitudes and actions of the man and his friends at the end of the sermon. But we should ask first of all. What is he looking for? He's looking for healing. We already read, right, previously, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. It's obvious as he's teaching them, as he's, he's already traveled some and, and done some miracles and been, done some teaching by this point in the Gospels, in, the, in the, his ministry, everybody's aware this is the healing guy. This is the guy that if you have a problem, you go to. And yet, what does Jesus do first? When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, my son,' Man, your sins are forgiven you. That is not what the guy wanted. I'm not, we're not even entirely sure that that's what the guy thought he needed, right? I, I don't know. Is he thinking about his sins, thinking about his relationship with God? His friends bring him up on the roof and lower him down in there. He's lowered down on the bed. Jesus says, your man's are, your, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I suspect probably his first thought is, that's great, but that's not what I wanted. That's not why I'm here. Do you, do you not see what's going on here, Jesus? I'm laying here on the ground. I, I came for healing. Why are we talking about sins? We keep, I think, as we think about this story, as the woman at the well, the story of Nicodemus, people come to Jesus, or they encounter Jesus, expecting one thing and getting something entirely different. And Jesus imposes a deeper spiritual truth in this normal physical service. Now, I say normal. It's not really normal in the fact that there's all these people crowded around and they lower this guy down through the roof. When I say normal, I mean mundane, physical in nature. This is a story that at the center of it is a very physical need. This guy needs healing to be able to walk. And yet Jesus is confronting people with the reality that they're not prepared for. Not the physical reality, but spiritual reality. He sees this man, he's in need, and to everyone around him, they're probably thinking, oh man, Jesus is going to do a miracle. Jesus is going to heal this guy. And the thing that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And not only the man who's like, well, I wanted to be healed. Maybe the people in the crowd are like, well, that's, that's kind of a letdown. That's kind of lame. We were expecting some healing, Jesus, some supernatural power. But Jesus is confronting people with a deeper spiritual reality. All the time we see that, and of course they get angry. The Pharisees especially get angry, right? The scribes and the Pharisees speaks blasphemies. Uh, blasphemy uh, is, would be uh, taking something that belongs to God and ascribing it to, in this case, a human, right? Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
But then Jesus, knowing their thoughts and perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he answered them, why do you think evil? And question in your hearts. Now, this is one of the places where we see the interesting divergences of accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they emphasize different things in Jesus' response here. Luke says, 522, when Jesus perceived their thoughts. Uh, Matthew, he says it this way, 9-4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts... Mark 2, 8, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thought thus. Slightly different emphasis about what exactly is going on with Jesus here. Mark, I think, especially emphasizing a more supernatural version of this. Matthew, I think, perhaps, too. Luke, perhaps, more emphasizing just a perception, right? He, he, he looks around and they start to question, and yeah, of course, that's what they're thinking. But of course, there's an undercurrent in the Gospels of Jesus' insight into people. The human condition, his understanding, both empathetic, because he's a human, he understands us, and supernatural, derived from the Spirit given to him by God. As we think about the insight of Jesus throughout the Gospels, John says it this way, John 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And again, you can kind of go both ways with this. He knows what's in man. Why? Because he is a man. He's a human. He knows. On the other hand, he doesn't need anyone to bear witness. There's an also an extra level of supernatural knowledge here, which his disciples make plain. John 16, 29. His disciples said, ah, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. That's why we believe you came from God. Why do they believe we came, he came from God? Because he knew all this stuff. He knows everything. As we've discussed, it's hard exactly to parse when Jesus came to know what in his ministry, growing up, having some knowledge, of course, of his mission, of course, beset by every human weakness as we are. But by the time of his ministry, at least for sure, he has supernatural insight. He perceives these Pharisees questioning among themselves. Why are they doing that? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I want to note Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I want you to note the transition from the word of God, which we would think of supposedly as an inanimate object, it's not personal, to a personal word in the next verse, no creature is hidden from his sight. The word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, but no creature is hidden from his side. Who's the his there? Who's the word of God? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. No creatures hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Just as Jesus knew the hearts of people in his ministry, he knew they were questioning in their, their thoughts. They had these evil thoughts. He knew they were asking these questions. Guess what? He knows that now too. The things that we bury deep the things that we hide from others, the things that we are uncomfortable sharing, Jesus knows all that. He knows your doubts and your concerns and your confusions, and he also knows when you don't obey just because you don't want to obey. Right? We rationalize. We come up with reasons why. There's no fooling Jesus. He knows. 
Now, there's a two-edged sword to that, right? On the one hand, he knows, and that's a sign of warning, right? That we need to make sure we're doing what's right. On the other hand, he knows humans, and yet he still decided to do what? He still decided to go through with the crucifixion. At this point, of course, in the gospel narratives, he knows what's in a human. He knows what people think. He knows how people are. And yet he still chose to go to the cross. He still chose to intercede for you, even though he knows all of your deepest, darkest thoughts. He's still willing to forgive. So we go back to this. The Pharisees, they're upset. They're questioning. They don't like it. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to question in themselves, saying, why does this man speak like that? Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's a gracious way to interpret this. On the one hand, if we're being gracious towards the Pharisees, what they're saying is true, right? Only God can forgive sins. Who is this guy, this random schmuck, who thinks that he can do that? How dare he say that? Except Jesus does not interpret it graciously. Jesus says, why do you think evil and question in your hearts. Why would Jesus interpret their thoughts as evil? We could explain it away as they're trying to do what's right, right? Only God can forgive sins, except Jesus doesn't think that. Their thoughts about this blasphemy are not in accordance with truth. They've seen what Jesus can do. They've seen who Jesus is. He's already taught by this point. There's been several instances already where they've seen the power of the Spirit. They've seen his authority to teach, and they're unwilling to accept what is right there in front of them. The truth that is right there in front of them. Unwilling to accept the obvious conclusion that Jesus comes from God. Which brings us to the healing. He ultimately does heal the guy. But it's interesting the, the, the order of this. The forgiveness and then the healing. In other places it's the reverse. The healing and then the forgiveness. Which is easier to say? Of course Jesus is saying this. To the paralytic your sins are forgiven you. Or to say rise up and walk. Now there's an irony in the text. Which is easier to say? I would actually go so far as to say the second one is easier from a, a standpoint of there's some guy who's paralytic. Well, I could, we could, as a society, we figured out some great technological interventions for health, right? We could get him prosthetic. We could do some surgery, right? We can do that. That's a thing we can do. Now, I couldn't just say get up and walk, obviously. But no matter how far we come technologically, the first statement, your sins are forgiven you, we can't do that. I could, as a society, we can, in some ways, heal paralytics. We cannot forgive, nor will we ever be able to forgive. Ever. That's just not a thing that is within us to do. But Jesus' point, of course, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Why did Jesus heal the man at all? It wasn't necessarily because that was what the man wanted. He healed to show the Pharisees, I can forgive sins. My authority over the physical world and the spiritual world is absolute. A second insight then from this encounter. Jesus' benevolent power served the teaching, not the other way around. The teaching was the priority and the power served the teaching. In this case, the teaching is what? I can forgive. 
The power serves in the healing to emphasize, yes, I can forgive. Now, of course, the great thing is the guy also got healed, and that was awesome for the guy. Of course, he goes home glorifying God. But it's easy and, and maybe tempting for us to reduce Jesus to a healer who simply helped people out of the goodness of his heart. And in fact, this is in some ways the way the world wants to think about Jesus, people who don't really want to commit. But they like Jesus as a healer, a compassionate person. And it's true that he is full of compassion. He cares for the suffering of others. We see that over and over in the Gospels, right? But his purpose, and this is important, was not to heal. His purpose was to teach. And when we reduce Jesus to this sort of compassionate healer, which he is, but if that's all we think of Jesus, that he primarily came to physically help people, we miss the real point, which we've seen over and over, the real point of confronting people with deeper spiritual truth. With Nicodemus, unless someone's born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. With the woman at the well, the father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Here, the deeper spiritual truth, your faith, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. And so this story serves as one of the most obvious examples of this hierarchy. It seems as though Jesus perhaps purposefully waited to heal the man until it could be a teaching moment. When he's lowered into the, onto the, the ground through the roof, Jesus could have just done it right then. He's lowered to the ground, Jesus sees the guy, get up and walk, and away he goes. But what does he miss if he does it in that order? He misses this whole interaction. He misses the opportunity to teach not just the Pharisees, but all the rest of the people who are looking that Jesus' power runs deeper than the physical world. He says it this way in Mark 1.38. He said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Why I came out, not just, I believe, in going from town to town, but why he came out of heaven to show us the truth. The power served the teaching and not the other way around. The conclusion of the story then as we wrap it up, as we think about he's healed and everybody around him, what do they react? When the crowd saw it, two things, three things. Amazement, fear, and awe. Amazement seized them all. They were afraid. They were filled with awe, saying, we never saw anything like this. We have seen extraordinary things today. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Interesting way of responding here. The end result, of course, is exactly what it should be, that the people recognize Jesus' authority. They recognize that God has given authority to this person, Jesus. Authority not just over physical realms and healing and, and ailments, but authority over sin. But it's interesting, they're afraid. Matthew specifically emphasizes fear. The other gospel writers don't. This is, again, we see an interesting distinction. There is amazement, there is awe, but there's also a little bit of fear. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, he just read the thoughts of the Pharisees. Pharisees questioning in their hearts these evil questions. Jesus confronts them. And what's the first thing maybe that the other people around them are, are, are realizing at this point? Oh, he just read the thoughts of the Pharisees. Uh-oh, what have I been thinking this whole time? Right? What, what, have, what is it that we've been thinking this whole time that Jesus has been around us? Wait, was there any time when I was thinking anything blasphemous or anything bad? Oh no, Jesus can read thoughts. There's a little bit of fear in that. I think there's also a little bit of fear. Your sins are forgiven you. Well, wait, is he going to do that for me? Is he going to forgive my sins? What do I need to be forgiven of? 
the authority, which is accompanied by amazement and awe, should also be accompanied a little bit by fear. Jesus continually demonstrates authority in his teaching, the prioritization of spiritual needs over the physical. And I think there's another element of fear in that too. Why do I come to Jesus? Why am I interested in Jesus? Is it just what I get out of it? Just the physical blessings that I think Jesus will give me? Or am I pursuing the deeper spiritual truth? And if I'm not interested in the deeper spiritual truth, we've already said what? Jesus knows. Jesus knows if you're only here because of the blessings. He knows if you're only here because of what you get out of it, or if you're interested in pursuing Jesus because of his authority. We'll conclude by returning to the superlative example of faith. Of course, I think most directly applicable to us is the actions of the friends. They're standing around outside. What are we going to do? They come to Jesus. They want healing. Total faith that Jesus can heal. And his friends, who also a great example of friendship, figure out we're not going to just leave our friend here and we're not just going to sort of figure it out and, and go home and try a different time. We're here now. Jesus is in there. we got to figure out a way to get in there so our friend can be healed. And Jesus, of course, I think commends this by forgiveness. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, man, your sins are forgiven you. They had such faith in Jesus' ability to heal that they were willing to do whatever it took to get there. The question, of course, for us, is that the kind of faith we have in Jesus? That I am willing to do whatever it takes to get to him. And am I willing to do whatever it takes to bring others to Jesus? It's not just the man, but his friends. Who his friends are, they're the ones that have to do all the work. They're the ones that have to figure out how to get him onto the roof and figure out how to open the roof and figure out how to let him down. Not just, of course, for physical healing, that's what his friends are thinking about, but for us. What am I willing to do to bring others to the spiritual healing that Jesus provides? Because a lot of times I, I, I feel like the answer is, Anything that's not too inconvenient, right? That's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to do anything that's not too hard. Anything that's not too difficult. But the example of the faith is that they were willing to do whatever it took because they trusted that much in Jesus' power. As we conclude, the invitation and the challenge to come to Jesus, not just for physical healing, but for spiritual healing, the forgiveness that he offers. And to not let anything get in the way of that. It might be family. It might be friends. It might be coworkers. It might be, there's some stuff in my life I'm going to have to give up. It might be, it's going to be difficult and awkward and, and it's uncomfortable. What gets in the way of Jesus for you? And the answer should be, you're not willing to let anything get in the way. So the invitation is quite simple. Whatever those things are that are getting in the way of you coming to Jesus, do you trust in his power to heal? And if you trust, deeply trust in his power to heal, why let anything get in the way? 